Hold on to your butt. Welcome to episode 52 of the Civil War Breakfast Club podcast. As always, I'm joined by a woman who, in this case, will be the second most infamous Mary on this episode. And I am, as always, Jess Darren. Hey, Mary, how are you? You're not just Darren. And, well, hey, I, I kind of like that. Second most infamous. That's... In this case, uh, that doesn't say a lot. I will carry that. Oh, I will definitely carry that. Well, here we are at episode 52. 52. That's a, that's a long time. That's a long time for anything. But this is a special episode today, Mary. For one, it's about, about our first year anniversary episode. It is. Yes. And we're going to make a special episode. So we are going to have a special guest today. And we've been talking for many times about uh, John Wilkes Booth and the Lincoln Conspiracy. And we decided to bring in one of our friends who we consider one of the experts on the subject, the Lincoln Conspiracy. And that is, of course, the great Dave Taylor. How are you, Dave? I'm great. Thanks for having me and happy one year anniversary. Thank you. Yes, yeah. that was a well, little surprise the... for you that you are one year anniversary wow. guest. I feel like I just walked into a like, grocery store and you're like, you're a 100th <laughs> customer and you get something. So well, the me. first anniversary is the Dave anniversary. So we have to, you know, that's. Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah. That is. Yeah. You get to nerd out with us tonight. <laughs> yeah, that's wonderful. And I didn't get you anything. I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, you know, your presence is your presence. How's oh, that? that's that? good. good. Darren always is sweetheart. Ooh, yeah, absolutely. Well, it is an honor to have you on it's great we've wanted to talk to you for a while about this we've wanted to talk about this subject for a long long time we're going to talk about the lincoln conspirators and we're going to give john wilkes booth the night off he's been run through the mud a little bit so we're going to leave him off the, the subject but nice a with the mud but we're going to talk to the other guys now as we know we're going to real briefly talk that you know there were nine put on trial we're not going to talk about uh, michael laughlin samuel mudd Edward Spangler, Samuel Arnold, or John Surratt Jr. We're going to talk about the primary of the four who were tried and executed. That would, of course, be David Harold, George Atzerodt, Lewis Powell, slash Payne, but he'll always be Powell to me, <laughs> and, of course, Mary Surratt. So we'll have some fun talking about that. And Dave has been around the, around the block a little bit with this. He's spoken at the, the Springfield Museum, the Lincoln Museum, and he um, does a lot of the, the booth escape tours. So he's someone who um, is definitely a a-list person when it comes to this um this subject so uh, so again welcome and um we'll have some fun tonight talking about the uh the old gang oh absolutely you know they they paid they had so much fun they just died laughing yeah they, exactly they're not laughing exactly <laughs> caught hanging around there it oh is. another pun we need the drum to dun dun how you don't already have the rim uh, shot i'm at the end of my rope with these jokes so we'll oh go. my that's enough <laughs> i will wow. not Oh, I was just about to make a <laughs> okay, joke. Okay, okay, okay. We'll let that go. We'll this let is painful. It's <laughs> Lewis painful. How did this last a whole Pain. year? <laughs> painful. I don't have any. You didn't tell me I had to prepare puns. <laughs> how? Just briefly, how did you get into the the Lincoln assassination and studying like all things to to do with it? Uh, yeah, so I grew up in Illinois, and so Lincoln is everywhere. So I was the strange kid when growing up in the land of Lincoln who was like, oh, yeah, cool, Lincoln. But uh, how did he die? Okay, tell me more about what happened there. Just because it seems so, it's so crazy to me that someone could kill who in Illinois is you know revered as our country's greatest president, and so how anyone could want to murder him. And so I just started doing research, kind of as, a, I guess, not research as a kid, just reading. And then when I was in high school, I was a drama nerd, so 
Shout out to all you musical lovers. And I was introduced to the musical Assassins by Stephen Sondheim, which is a very strange musical, but it is about presidential assassins. And John Wilkes Booth is in that, along with the other assassins, and both successful and attempted. And then that is what kind of bridged the gap from when I was really into musical theater and then getting me back into history. And then I just started reading about John Wilkes Booth and the plot, and then just learning more about the guys we're going to talk about tonight and just realizing it was far more complex than I ever thought. And I've just been reading and writing and speaking about it in my free time ever since. I just find it fascinating. I know Darren does too, kind of the mm-hmm. same same basic story. It just bites Absolutely. you when you're young. Mm-hmm. So in your drama days, do you ever find yourself calling anybody a sock-doggling old man trap? Absolutely. <laughs> and nobody understood what I was talking about. <laughs> crickets was the biggest joke back in 1865 and crickets now. Uncultured swine. That's what we're dealing with today. (laughs) Well, I think you were in good company with us because as we were talking about before we started recording this, it was the assassination that got Darren and I into this whole Civil War obsession, you know, and I guess ultimately what led to us doing this podcast together. So we are very, very happy to to have you on here to join us to talk to us about this and... I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. So again, we can we, we talk about the, the we're gonna about the four guys who three men and one woman who pay the ultimate price for following John Wilkes Booth down the primrose path to the gallows is what is what they really did. And so we'll start with David Harold. Now, David Harold, as we know, born in 1842 in Washington, D.C., seven sisters, three brothers who all died when they were infants. So he was the only boy growing up in a house full of women, which must have been awesome. <laughs> a lot of different ways, but it was came from a good upper middle class family. I mean, his father owned a bunch of properties in the area, some in Baltimore, some in Washington. But he was also he was a very impressionable kid. He was somebody who was quite witty. He was somebody who liked to hang with the popular kids. He was popular and somebody who I think was someone who was probably would have been easy to manipulate because he was so into wanting to be. I don't want to say accepted. But he wanted to be in that inner circle. I think that was a big part of his childhood. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, you played exactly when people talk about, you know, Booth's impact on on these people who we're going to talk about tonight. And Davy falls into the, you know, Booth was this, I mean, he's this world famous actor. I mean, he is just, it's hard for us to imagine because we see him now as just the villain. And it, it's so easy sometimes to just put him as, oh, he was the, the bad Booth. You know, he wasn't as good an actor as his brother Edwin. His brother Edwin also got to perform for decades after because he didn't mm. kill the president and die. And so Edwin was very good. But, you know, when Edwin was 26 and he was good but so was John Wilkes so you have to we always kind of I think we detach Booth from who he was then in 1864 1865 before his crime and we associate what he is now with this, this almost stereotypical characteristic like arch-villain twiddling his mustache and plotting the death of Lincoln mm-hmm. to Davy and to these other people who we're going to talk about like he was just this worldly educated famous talented person he had that magneticism around him that Davy especially was drawn to and as you said Darren you know being the the only boy and with seven sisters and then his father dies in 1863 he is the man of the house you know two years before all this with the assassination that having this worldly you know slightly older man like kind of be this person who takes an interest in you had a huge impact on him. I was going to say, for whatever reason, you know, people think of David Harold, you think of maybe there was, he was not quite all there. There was something missing. And it's tough to say because of his personality, but reportedly his father left him out of the will basically. And that he didn't want him in no way in charge of the family finances after he died, which probably speaks a lot to what he was. 
Reportedly, he meets John Wilkes Booth in April of 1863 during his performance of The Marble Heart, which reportedly is the same performance a couple days away as when he met Tad Lincoln. And that's that's the story. And met him backstage. He and you know, he's must have been just completely starstruck. Had to have been. And to your point, Dave, knowing a superstar like Booth, he got to know him a little bit, ran into him off and on here and there. It must have been a situation where a manipulative type of guy it must have been a moth to a flame for a guy like Booth later on. Well, I think it's kind of like you have to think of a really famous actor today. And that's how I try and explain the assassination sometimes to people. It's like it would be like, you know, I've sometimes said Leonardo DiCaprio. That's yeah. what it would have been like. These people were hanging out with as you think of a famous actor. For some reason, I always think of Leo. I don't know why, but I just do. And this is Leo could do it. Let's yeah. let's make the a new biopic, and Leo can be. He's a little old, but he yeah. can do it. He yeah, can do anything. like it's like Leonardo DiCaprio <laughs> is hanging out with these guys. So of course you're going to be starstruck, you know. And that's how I kind of put it to people this time. Like imagine one of the most well-known famous actors, and he's killed the president. But then think of it in the context of imagine these people who are hanging out with him. And he's bringing them into this conspiracy. And he's, you know, he's very manipulative with them. He's able to latch on to certain parts of their personalities and draw them in. I just, like I said, Leonardo DiCaprio is what it would have been like they they were hanging out with. Yeah. And everyone wanted to have something to do with him. Like, yeah. why wouldn't you? Yeah, of course, exactly. if, I had, if I could be friends with Leo, I'd be friends with Leo. Yeah, exactly. Especially, you know, he, you know, he gets to know him quite a bit. He meets him a couple of times off and on. Again, this is all, you know, reportedly, because the, the best thing we were saying before, the best thing about the Lincoln conspiracy is, is the stories. And whether they're true or not, they're stories. And you talk about them, and some might be true, some might be not. But because of the fact that most of the primary sources got destroyed by whoever had them for fear of incrimination, we're left with, with, with basically wives' tales. And that's kind of what it is. But allegedly, you know, this is a guy who, as a clerk at a farm, he went to school for pharmacology. I think it was Georgetown he went to. Yep. I believe. Uh, yes. Yep. Their story is he delivered castor oil to the White House yeah. to President Lincoln. So, you know, I don't know what's going on with old Abe, but, you know, <laughs> Dave Harold's to the rescue, I suppose. Maybe it was, maybe <laughs> yeah. it was for Mary. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> But didn't but do her much good. I'm just kidding. Yet another Mary. Another yeah. That's <laughs> There's something about the Marys. Yeah, there is. <laughs> There's a movie called. They should make a movie called something. That's a good idea. That's a good idea. But fast forward fall of 1864 is, you know, when Harold is going to meet Booth again in Washington, D.C. And this, this is when allegedly Booth tries to get him into his plot, into his conspiracy to, to go ahead and kidnap him. And the story, again, real quick, is... You know, the prisoner exchange program had been eliminated. It was called the um, the Dix Hill Cartel. And this was a situation where you were you were trading you were trading prisoners during the Civil War. And for many reasons, there was the there was a four pillow massacre with Nathan Bitter Forest. It got halted by Lincoln. So the plan was, well, if we can get this exchange program going again, we, we can get some of our guys back. Now the rebels refused to exchange black soldiers and white officers, and that was a big problem with it as well. Lincoln had that thing, General Order 100, what was called the Libra Code, which was basically demanded that all soldiers, black or white, were supposed to be treated the same, and that was not going to fly with the rebs. So Booth's thinking as well, if we can kidnap Lincoln, we can hold him for a king's ransom and at least get the exchange program open again. That seems to be the most common thinking of why the conspiracy plot to kidnap him existed. Yeah, and that's what I mean. That's what he tells these these people early on. Like the other people were not talking about because they were just involved in this abduction plot. It was a little harebrained, even to their you know 
opinions, you know, about being like, I don't know if this is really reasonable, but if we can do it, yeah, it would be great sort of thing. And I think Davey, you know, being, you know, as young as he is, 22 year old, 22 years old, I think at this point, and he's got this actor who's telling him I have this idea, it can bring us fame because we'll be heroes to the Confederacy. It can bring up fortune because the idea is perhaps the Confederate government would have close pay handsomely for an abducted Abraham Lincoln. And you can be part of this adventure with me. It just, it really drew in Davy, who though he was, you know, a young man at that point, he was described as being boyish. He wanted adventure. You know, he had, he was missing a father figure, even though Booth wasn't old enough to be his father, but still was, I think, uh, wanting that in his life. And I think one of the biggest misconceptions with Davy is that, as you, as you pointed out, Darren, that there is this idea that he was maybe not all there, you know. Agreed. That oh, inept I was like thinking that, that last. You time. get it I was everywhere. Reading about that, I'm like, this is a kid who, you know, he's a pharmacy clerk. I I don't know if that conception of him not being all there is completely true. I think he was just the kid that wanted to be popular, and when somebody like Booth comes along. You know, and Booth is the type of guy that he's bringing people into his inner circle that he is going to benefit from. And Davy, when he was a kid, he would go bird hunting. And because of that, that made him very familiar with the Maryland countryside. That is going to be so beneficial to Booth. So he's looking for this kind of mutually beneficial relationship. Like, how is this going to help me? So obviously, in being the charismatic person he is, Booth is going to come to know Davy and learn this about him. And I think that's one of the reasons why he's mm. going to bring him in. And because he knows that about Davy, he's going to be really, you know, like play into what Davy wants, which is to yeah, be liked by him. Those years of going with his father hunting in Maryland, you know, certainly, you know, knowing those back roads heading down that way was, was going to be appealing because why, why else would Booth have anything to do with a guy like that? He's going to play off of whatever he can. Every one of the people we're going to talk about, Booth saw something that he could take from. And for David, it was clearly his knowledge of, of the countryside. No yeah. And, and Davy, you know, going back to the idea of him being not all there or whatever, Davy was the most, other than Dr. Mudd, Davy had the most education out of all mm -hmm. the conspirators, mm -hmm. including Booth. Yeah. And so, you know, Davy wasn't, wasn't that. And the misconception comes because that was the tactic that his defense took at the trial to try to save him. Because Davy was kind of, you know, between a rock and a hard place after the assassination and his capture, he escaped with Booth. I mean, he, he spent 12 days and only briefly left Booth to then rejoin him back at the Garrett farm. And so, you know, there wasn't a lot of hope for Dave, even though he didn't kill anyone, but with law of conspiracy and everything, he was in a real bad place. And so the best possible defense that they had for him was to play him off as simple-minded and that he was easily manipulated, manipulated and things like that. And part of that might be true, but I think it's been way overblown in years since. And really, you know, Davey always gets the short end of the stick that, you know, some books played off as if he's almost mentally retarded. Yeah. Isn't as that if, what know, they said in Ken Burns? Yeah, they, they play him. And I don't I think it's Donald Dow's book about Lincoln, where I think later on he said he didn't know much about the life of like the Lincoln conspirators, especially Davy. And so he made a low life for them that he didn't, you know, because they're so hard to find research, as Darren pointed out, because some of these people really were nobodies, you know, and that's why, too. Booth was a famous actor. We have a lot of people talking about him afterward. But a lot of these other Davy's a pharmacist clerk. He's 22 years old. There's not much in his life that has happened that's been worth noting. And so we don't have a lot. And so you have this fabrication of all of the conspirators as being just low life villains because it's easier than actually trying to figure them out. Yeah, it's except for the lazy man's booth, that every, route, that every one of these guys must have been these guys knuckle dragging, child eating monsters, every single one of them. And I think what people, you know, as we talk about these people, it's important to realize the four people we're going to talk about, they had lives, they had families, they had dreams, they had goals. They were religious in a lot of cases. 
every one of them followed Booth for different reasons. And whatever they were, as misguided as they might have been, these were not mindless drones, even Powell for that part. They were all different, you know, individual, smart thinking people who chose this route for whatever reason. And I think that gets kind of thrown under the rug a lot. You know, they're, they're these, mm-hmm. they're these watching these mafia movies from the 20s are all just these machine gun guys in the backseat firing guns. These, these are people, every one of them, who if Booth never came along, they would have been nondescript to history, but they probably would have lived somewhat of a virtuous life, every single one of them. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. I, I, you know. I definitely think so. And I think, you know, like I said about Davey, I think he was, you know, like we were mentioning about Weichmann, you know, uh, we probably won't get much into Weichmann in the story, but very much the pop, the kid that wanted to be popular. Davey had something that Booth needed, and that was knowledge in the Maryland countryside. And he played into that and he brought Davey into his inner circle. But yeah, I think Davey, Davey also the, had loyalty. You know, exactly. out of all the conspirators, so as I say, loyal. 12 days with him, the yep. most loyal, you know, you could be. And I mean, and that is, you know, to anyone else, if you if David had been that loyal to anyone else, you know, it would have hopefully been a benefit in his life. Unfortunately, he put his loyalty in the one man, you know, he shouldn't have. Yep, exactly. And it's like, you know, you need to wonder kind of, you know, why he's doing that. But I think it, it goes back to the whole, this is the, the kid that that wanted to be popular and he's liked by this popular actor. So he's going to, he's willing to go literally like to the end for this guy whatever whatever it was with with booth he saw something in booth that he stuck with because the night of the assassination he wasn't very loyal to powell right no. i mean he kind of he kind of but isn't there stories that he but, but isn't there stories that he might not have even been with powell that well again it's it, all it's that's, yeah. that's what's great about this is i mean whatever the case was he ended up being focused on booth obviously and to stick with someone you know sticking in the woods uh, and Dave, you and I both spent, spent time in the pine thickets. We know how, <laughs> yep. how miserable that can be. Yeah. But, but especially when you're being, we weren't being hunted by dogs and cavalry and everybody else. But and a Canadian but it takes a, uh, <laughs> a know, Canadian and, and, uh, Edward Doherty. Uh, yep. them, you know, you probably heard the Anne Murray albums playing, and that's why. <laughs> Here, could I have this dance for the rest of my life playing? And each they come like no. I smell maple syrup and bad bacon. <laughs> and ketchup chips. Yep. Exactly. Is that Tim Horton's theme song? <laughs> oh my God. Are they eating poutine again? <laughs> we need some petrol. God. But, but you know, he's an interesting guy. The next guy I want to talk about is George Atzerodt. Now, Atzerodt's a guy, he's completely different background. You know, this is a guy who was born in 1835 in Prussia. He moved to the United States in 1844 with his family to Baltimore to a place that's ironically called Germantown, because that's where the Germans were, which is just northwest of Washington. Um, he lived at a farm. But this is a guy who obviously, he, you know, he's one of the hardworking Germans who comes over here. He ends up being a coach maker in Washington with his brother, goes into his brother, John, uh, sets up his business out of a place called Port Tobacco, Maryland, which is a great little place right on the Potomac River, by mm-hmm. the way. And he ferries you know. people across during the Civil War. It's well, that, that's the thing, does. is that, you know, when the Civil War starts, you know, and this is where, you know, John, his brother, ends up taking a job with the Maryland provost. And so he kind of goes one direction, and, and George left on the other side. So George, he stays in Port Tobacco to keep that carriage business alive. He's got to make some extra money because John's going to basically disappear, and he's going to need to find a way to supplement his money. He gets married. He has a young girl named Edith who shows up. He needs to make some money. So he becomes a rebel smuggler to, for some extra money. And this is going to be, you know, why would Booth be interested in him? Well, this is the reason why. 
he is going to find a way to ferry supplies and mail across the Potomac through the Union lines and be very, very good at it. He's going to be a you know carriage maker by day and smuggler by night. How's that for a how's that for a LinkedIn resume? Right there? <laughs> he, he's you also know? the only. I think he's the only immigrant, and he's not an American citizen either. That's involved with the conspiracy. No. You know, and he ends up meeting John Surratt. You know, down in that area, who pulls him into that into Booth's plot. They hire George to obviously get across the Potomac as part of that that Confederate underground. So he's an interesting guy too because he's an immigrant, and his motivation it seems anyway, is clearly financial, clearly. Absolutely. I mean, again, that fame and fortune, you know, he didn't care about the fame so much, but the fortune, the idea that all I have to do is do what I already do kind of as a pastime, this time just with Lincoln and I will get a huge payday. Fine. Like that sounds great to me. I'm, you know, he's Confederate in his leanings, but it's funny. I see George as kind of like he would, if it was reversed, if he hadn't lived in Southern Maryland and he was somewhere else where he was, I don't know if he was in the South and there was union people there who were paying him to do something clandestine for them. I think George hundred percent would have done that. Oh, I agree I completely. You could have bought his sympathies for whatever you wanted. I agree. So picture you picture your carriage maker, you're German and there's not, you know, not a lot of real strong sentiment towards foreigners in this country. Thank God that's changed. <laughs> but especially in the civil war with Germans, right? Especially here comes John Surratt offering you an opportunity to make a lot of money. And to your point, Dave, I already do this. What's yeah. the, what's the what's the big deal? I've got a baby. I've got a wife. My brother just took off. I can't run this carriage company on my own. The Civil War basically kind of really screwed that up. So of course he's going to agree. The thing about about old George though was you know you know his plan he was he was going to wait to pour tobacco and then to get you know ferry Lincoln across. He was never even supposed to go to Washington. He was just supposed to stay down there. And the whole thing kind of went off kilter once the whole thing went on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he was just like it was just another job, and, and this I mean there's other people in this. The, the the story is that in Southern Maryland, everyone knew about Booth's abduction plot. You know that it was the worst kept secret. Like the story down there is like everybody. You go down there, and you find people who've lived there for generations, and be like, oh yeah, yeah, we heard mumblings that that there was going to be a kidnapping of Lincoln who was going to come through here, and so you know everyone and they were all Confederate sympathizers down there. So it was just like yeah, sure, and you know one of the other gentlemen who plays into the escape, but later on, Thomas Harbin, who is introduced to Booth by Dr. Mudd and everything, kind of does the same thing where Booth's like, hey, I'm going to kidnap Lincoln, bring him down here. Will you help me? And he's like, well, if you bring him down here, sure, because I'm already doing these underground Confederate activities. And George kind of just fell in the same way with the promise of a payday. But I do, you know, I find it interesting, as we know, later on, George is the one who just confesses all the time once the arrests happen he's hoping to not get in trouble if he just becomes state's witness so he's saying everything which makes him somewhat unreliable but also the best source we have because he just names names and just just lays it out to anyone who wants to including his brother you know later on and i just like how he talks about how well the first place he met john wilkes booth though was at mary saras that, you know, John Surratt came down to hire him and he was like, oh, yeah, I guess so. But then uh, George goes up to Washington to meet Booth personally. And it happens in the parlor of the Surratt boarding house. It does. And what we don't know if they sang karaoke, Mary. Well, right. There. We Did don't they know sing this. Call Me they Maybe? Very well could have. Maybe a little, you know, uh, of Weeder's name or that song is. Maybe they did a little song. But, <laughs> but he, yeah, he ends up in, he ends up in Washington and he's going he's gonna to end up taking Booth and Harold down to Port Tobacco to show them the boat that they're going to be using, right? This is the boat that John Surratt had basically bought. We'll talk about guys like Richard Smoot and those guys later on, but his plan for that point was just utilitarian. He was going to be a, a tool, a wrench. They're going to bring him down here. I'm going to get them across. I'm going to get paid, and that's going to be it. And the sad part about old George here was as this whole thing went on, 
you know, when he says later on that he didn't sign on for the assassination, I tend to believe him. I really do. I do too. And the thing about it, though, is he was a guy who really did whatever he could to turn state's evidence at this trial. All the, the prosecutors did was just so, okay, okay, and then use other people to cor- corroborate that and then screw them. It's kind of what they did. Oh, yeah. So, so <laughs> it was unfortunate for him. I wish in that conspirator, the conspirator movie that they maybe did a little more into him because I think he's such an interesting character. He He's an interesting one. He's the one after Mary Surratt that I like to study. And I guess like, you know, my one image of him that I have is in the Killing Lincoln documentary that National Geographic did where he's sitting there in that hotel wherever they are with Booth. And he said, I signed up for kidnapping, not killing. And it was just like when I saw that, it really, you know, hit me again. I'm like, wow, maybe this guy really did not you know, they're dragging him in this more and more. And like you see Booth and, in in, you know, the camera flips to Booth and he's like, you're in this and you're mm-hmm. not getting out at all. And that just shows you like, you know, again, it goes back to how manipulative Booth could be that he knows he's got George. George, I think at that point knows he can't get out of this. Yeah, He's blackmailed for, you know, lack of a better word, because, yeah, yeah. even after. So this abduction plot isn't taking place. They, they, they bring George in in like January of 65. Yeah. And then by then it's it the whole entire plan that Booth had started, you know, in the fall was about kidnapping Lincoln when he was going to the soldier's home, which he's not doing in the middle of winter now. And so the, you know, George then just ends up kind of hanging around and, and Booth is paying for some of his expenses in Washington yeah. and things like that. And so he's just waiting for this thing to happen or not. Either way, you know, he's getting, you know, his accommodations paid for by this famous actor. And then when, you know, it turns and suddenly it's April and suddenly Booth on April 13th is like, hey, tomorrow I'm going to kill the president and Lewis Powell's going to kill, you know, the secretary of state and you, George, you're going to kill the vice president. That's when George suddenly is he's like, like, wait a minute. Nope. All these things I've done these last few months where I've been taking care of Booth's horses or sharing them or like looking to sell them or like interacting with him and all these people. Now I've realized I've just completely incriminated myself in all of this. I've, I've just, I, I agree that I don't, I don't think Booth ever, I mean, uh, George ever had any inkling it was going to be assassination until Booth already had him roped into it regardless. Yeah, and he was and, like, told him, he's like, by the way, you're going to go kill the vice Yeah. President. He even says at one point when he says, I'm not going to do it, you know, George, I mean, again, we can only trust what George says, Yeah. but in one of his confessions, he said he balked and said, I won't do it. That's when Booth says, well, then maybe Davey will do it, but what will become of you? And mm-hmm. so he had him, he had George wrapped around his finger and, you know, in a lot of documentaries and stuff, they say, well, on the night of the assassination, Booth, you know, shoots Lincoln, Powell stabs Seward, and George Astorot gets drunk. And I've done it for the laugh before, too. Yeah. But really, I think instead of taking it as cowardice, I think it's his conscious, the conscience that he yeah. didn't want to do it. He couldn't bring himself to do it because I don't think he, first of all, believed in murder. And he especially, you know, even though he'd been blackmailed into it, he still wasn't going to pull the trigger for Booth. Yeah, there's just something I, I don't know. I, I've always like seen George as being that way, like not in it for he's like because he's just finding out about this, like. It's not his cause. Like 24 hours before he's supposed to do it. He's like, but, what? But, <laughs> I've been you know, told I'm supposed to do this, and now you're telling me I have to do this? He no. Did, he did hang around that Kirkland house, though. That's the He thing. checked he, in. He, he followed he, Booth's orders. He, yeah. he, yep. he didn't make a run for it. He So Booth at that point was a spider, and you got in the web, and you were stuck, and that was it. He hung around, and his, you know, even you know, according to the Weichmann book, he, he could have ran, but he didn't. So I don't know if he was vacillating, but I don't think there was ever a, a situation where he was actually going to go through with that. Yeah, I don't no. think it was ever going to happen. 
you know, and, and Booth realized that too. I mean, we're talking about Davy and you know Darren's point about how he bailed on Powell and Mary. You brought up in Michael Kaufman's book. There's very little evidence, like concrete evidence, that Davy went with Powell to Seward's house. Mm-hmm. There is only an article that came out in a newspaper, if I'm remembering correctly, like a few days after the assassination, that said that that he was lead. But we don't have a source. I don't think we have a good source for that, like mm-hmm. where it came from. And so, and I think there's good evidence that part of George's confessions are accurate that I think Booth seeing that George was faltering and even the blackmail may not be enough. Really Kaufman puts out there that Davy was supposed to be the point man that maybe he led him to, he led Powell to Seward's, but then he deliberately left not worrying about chaos or any of that stuff, but to go check on George and to maybe the two of them together, were going to make an attempt on um, the vice president. But at that yeah. point, George had abandoned the Kirkwood, locked the door and and left. And that's why Davy didn't have any other choice other than get on his own horse and escape after Booth. Well, there's that story where, where people heard the pounding on the door is likely Davy yeah. knocking on the door. And yeah, so- the, yeah. Mm-hmm. the wife of the hotel keeper said around 10, 15, someone's running in the hallway, pounding on the door, a door. And that the assumption is that was Davy looking for George. Mm-hmm. And that that's again, we, we to the beginning, that's what's great about these stories is that you never know. Was it Davy looking for George? Maybe he was the one who per, per John Wilkes make sure he gets there. But again, you never know. You never know. So that, that's probably- But also we have all that stuff in George's room that he locked that belonged to Booth. Yeah, like, exactly. and, and stuff that were that could have helped him. There was a map in there and there was Booth's coat along with some money and other mm-hmm. things. So the assumption is that Davey, even if he wasn't going to help George, wanted to get that stuff for the escape. But because George had locked it and left, he was stymied and had to just leave. And that's why Booth, you know, we talk about his famous diary that Booth, you know, just has this because he doesn't have the supplies he was supposed to have on the run. He's got to make do with what he had. That's yeah. why he was a diary of toilet paper, by the way. Just saying. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. He's a diary of toilet <laughs> I've been paper. I've that for years. I've been saying that oh, for years. God. It's absolutely That's accurate. Yeah. That's the missing. Sorry. Sorry, Benjamin Gates. I don't know if he needed that many pages, but he definitely used some of them oh, for did. toilet paper. Absolutely. Oh, no, you better the Surat boarding house? <laughs> I've never had problems with the sushi. <laughs> but you could you could say you could say all you want about Atzerab, but but I think he's kind of the helpless victim in this whole thing, where he got pulled into it for financial reasons. He had a supportive family. He had a brother who who left and left him the business basically to founder. The Civil War took care of that. He had to find his way. Doesn't justify what he did, but you can see the wheels in his mind going. I've, I just got to do what I what I've been doing, and I'm going to get a bunch of money. Why wouldn't I? Yeah, exactly. I think yeah. the, the hope was it wasn't going to happen, too, because, I mean, he's the one he doesn't attack the vice president. And then he goes toward Fords and afterwards and sees the chaos that's going on. And then he doesn't know what to do. He spends I mean, you think of if I'm committed, I have an escape plan. He didn't because I think it really wasn't something he thought he was hoping wouldn't happen. It was a bad dream. And Booth was just being crazy. And that's why he rides the the stagecoach, you know, all night, then just goes to a hotel, checks in, leaves early in the morning without paying and tries to make his way out because he's like, what do I do now? Because I never thought that this was going to happen. Yeah, he always thought it was probably just going to be kidnapping. And, you know, he finds out April 13th. Oh, no, no, it's not. They want me to kill the vice president. Like, where does your mind go as a human? Like, how do you And and what do you do? Because I think Booth was manipulated enough that even if George had straight up said, you know, we talk about, and, I, and I've noticed before, like they all had the, all of these people we're talking about. I think the reason they pay the ultimate price is because the evidence shows to some degree that they knew what Booth was going to do. 
and they did nothing to stop it. Some of them actively assisted in it. And some of them like George just didn't do anything about it. But at the same time, if I was in the same shoes, what could I do? I mean, you want to feel like I would be the hero. I would go to the Metropolitan Police Force and be like, John Wilkes Booth is going to shoot Lincoln. But at the same time, like, first of all, would they believe you? And Booth had wrapped him around so much in all of this. Exactly. That what repercussions would it be for me? It's not worth the risk if I can somehow just get out of it. And the other thing, too, is he is a German immigrant who is not an American citizen. And, you know, you you look at, you know, my my favorite core in the AOP is the 11th core. They're primarily German. They don't get treated very well. You know, so there's this kind of either on either side, he's not looked upon very highly. So some of that could have factored into it. You know, like I know Kaufman writes about how he was seen differently from the other conspirators. Like, you know, people would see Booth and Surratt as being very gentleman-like. And then Adzerat was kind of the awkward guy. Old plug tobacco. Yeah, didn't looked really. looked weird and yeah, hunched over. Hunched over, didn't really fit in with them. Dirty. You know? And it, I, I think that's kind of the, the culture, you know, with who he was from, the prejudice against him as a German, as an immigrant, as somebody who's not an American citizen. And I think, you know, when you're looking at George Adzerat and what has happened to him, what he goes through, like you have to think about that too, that that's some of that is factoring into his story as well. Yeah, it is a lot. Now, before before we go on to Powell, this is possible. We'll take a little quick digression. What, what do you think the point was really when Booth decided he was going to kill Lincoln? I think a lot of it was Booth's own vanity. I, I truly think the war was coming to an end. He saw it, and I don't think he could live with the idea that the war over and everyone coming back as heroes, you know, and the respect that people would have that they fought in the war, even, you know, on both sides, that Booth, you know, he had been kind of, because he was affluent, had was able to just piss away the Civil War without having to get his hands dirty. And I think the combination of Booth being a Shakespearean actor who wanted to who acted out these being the savior of the Republic of being the Brutus who slays the Caesar and him believing that Lincoln had become a tyrant combined with the fact that though it was almost, it was, it was already too late to do anything about it. It really was. But Booth maybe thinking that if I, I want the greatness associated with this great event in which so many people have died and fought and gained honor from, this is what I'm going to do. I think it was almost pure vanity with uh, the idea that it would help the Confederacy, the South would rise. All of that, I think is just lies. Booth told himself to just deal with his ego, that he couldn't deal with the fact that he had plotted something great and had planned all these wonderful things that were going to happen to him. And now it was for nothing. And I need that greatness that I guaranteed myself. But do you think it kicked in earlier, though? my saying to you because there's the story of the lawn letter for example there's a story of the charles shelby letter right where some might be urban myth might be true the story where you know someone sends a letter to the national hotel with all these details of the assassination before and was delivered to the wrong room and booth never got it and then of course there was the selby letter which is the, the one in 1864 that a woman saw a guy look like booth she dropped a letter of the train and it talked about and this is the letter that allegedly that that really freaked lincoln out that he held Hold on to in his desk out of all the assassination letters this is the one that resonated with him. So do you put any credence on those? And do you, and do you think no. that there's any sort of any truth to that stuff? Because I mean, there were threats against Lincoln, no doubt. But in terms of them being connected to Booth, like, like yeah, the, one of the first witnesses is Mary Hudspeth in New York talking about how mm-hmm. she found this letter in a gutter on a streetcar. But even then, it wasn't that it was Booth. It was just like, I, I think the government was just trying to put it 
they wanted to put it all together at, at the trial to be like, look at how it was the Confederacy. Remember, the big, the whole reason for the trial wasn't really to put those eight people on trial. It was to put Jefferson Davis. It was to a prelude to Jefferson Davis and all those traitors and to be like, they are the ones that killed our president. These were the little people who did it, pulled the trigger, helped them out. But they were the ones that did it. And I just that was just the wrong way to go. And I think that all those letters, you know, that I, I wish we had a smoking gun really for Booth to directly connect him to Jefferson Davis and the Confederates. But in all of the reading I've done, I've seen hints of it. You know, John Surratt was a Confederate courier. He mm -hmm. had involvement with some of these guys, but a direct link, I just, is not there in my opinion. It was like they, it was a lot of cases was like they, they had the answer to the question and they had to go find the question to let up to the answer. The Selby yeah. letter is pretty, pretty obvious. They, had, they brought in a handwriting expert who swore it was Bruce handwriting and they did this, it was all that stuff that kind of played it. But I think it, they had the answer and they needed to prove it. And I think that they, they were going backwards. I just, it's pretty popped in my head because that, that was, that was a lot of what we're talking about with this stuff is a lot of the stuff that is clearly urban legend. Obviously, Bootshot Lincoln, no question. Powell attacked Seward. Everything else, you can make a case of who the hell knows. That's what's, that's the, that's the reality of this is that there was so much stuff lost and there's so much stories and so many rumors and so many just hearsay that it's fun to talk about because you know, we'll never know. And we'll never know. I, I think it definitely was vanity, you know, and just like he's watching the Confederacy die and he didn't expect that. And there's that quote from him, you know, and who knows if it's true where he's, you know, in the, in, in the star saloon, right? And he said, when I leave the stage, I will be the most talked about man in America. And that goes back to the vanity, whether that quote is true. Well, I said that whenever I leave the bar, so it doesn't. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> Trust me, I know. It's like your tagline. Oh, we know Darren's drunk. He's talking about being the most yeah, famous man like, in America when again. Leave, like, when I leave the stage, I'll be the most famous Y'all slurring when I leave okay, the stage, Mary. Okay, Darren, it's Mary. time to go home now. <laughs> Did I tell you about the time I left the stage, Mary? <laughs> Light my cigar on the lamp. That scene in Killing Lincoln where he lights the cigar on the lamp. That, that's that's right, classic We're going to talk about Lewis Powell now. We're going to talk about Lewis Powell. Okay. And I always call him Lewis Powell. We'll talk about how he gets called Payne here in a little bit. Um, but it's always Lewis Powell. That, that's his name. Born in Alabama, born in 1844. I believe he had 11 brothers and sisters. He had a big, big family. He ended up moving to Florida when his family's finances kind of went kaput. He's the guy who has real Civil War experience. So he's part of the second Florida. He joins on the end of May 1861. So he joins pretty quick. Ends up fighting at the siege of Yorktown with Magruder, 18, uh, 1862. He's part of Jubal Early's Brigade, Mary. We talk about him a lot. Mm -hmm. He fights the Second Manassas in Tiedem, uh, Fredericksburg. But Gettysburg is where he gets all of his chops. So he was shot in the wrist either on the second day as part of Lane's Brigade, either on the Pickett's Charge or the second day. No one really knows for sure. But he ends up being held at Pennsylvania College, which is Gettysburg College now, which makes me think it was probably on the third day when he was probably shot because the second day was still held by Confederates. There wouldn't have been a Union prisoner war camp that day, realistically. But it doesn't matter. He goes there, and today's point earlier, he's got a real knack with medicine for whatever reason. As a child, he would restore animals to health when he was a kid. He ended up helping a lot with the Confederate wounded. And he ends up meeting a woman named Margaret Branson. And this is a woman who's from Baltimore. And she's a lot, like a lot of civilians, they came down to the area to help the Confederates. And she takes a shine to, to Powell. He's going to ultimately get transferred to a hospital, a prisoner war camp in Baltimore. There's that great story about how she snuck him out of prison. Who knows if that's true? If they put the, the, the yeah. file. He escaped tape. with air quotes. He <laughs> escaped. <laughs> but there's that story she, she bribed the guard. Yeah, she, she brought him a cloak and brought a cake with a $10 <laughs> note in it. And yeah. that he used the cloak and the 
$10 to bribe his way out. <laughs> it's a great story if that's the case. Yeah. But regardless, he, he does get out. She does help him escape. That's the, she ends up living in, it's, it's, I think it's 16 Utah Street, which is mm-hmm. the same road that Camden Yards is on, Mary, by the way, where the Orioles play, just a little bit north of nice. the ballpark. And there's a boarding house there. And he's going to ultimately end up end up going back to the Confederate Army. He joins Mosby's Rangers, winter of 1863, give or take, in that ballpark. But he's a guy who's got – he's young, but he's got a lot of fighting experience. And he's somebody who's a capital C Confederate in the, in, in the war. He also survived being kicked by a mule. Right in the face. Yep. When he was a kid. Yep. <laughs> just had to so he's good with it. animals, but yeah. just don't get behind. That's how he learned to be yeah. good with animals. Like, One mistake. Exactly. Then you learn. Don't go behind exactly. the mule near the lens. <laughs> But it's funny because, you know, he ends up staying with them in early 1865, and he, he ends up leaving his union. What's interesting about him, though, is he's very loyal to the Confederates, but he also walks on his union, and he actually takes the oath of, of allegiance to the union and goes back to Baltimore. He ends up back at, at Brant's boarding house, early 1865, and this is probably when he met John Wilkes Booth, realistically, was up there in Baltimore. There's connections where, you know, he was working at a place in, I believe it was a China shop he was working at. So mm-hmm. you could literally say he was a bull in a China shop, Mary. You could literally use that quote to describe it. So bad. In, in, <laughs> in this, in, in I'll this just edit that one out. I, oh, thank you so much. Anyway, <laughs> you know, my little Derringer is what I need for you. Okay. You know, but the reality was that allegedly that little shop was a stop on the Confederate Railroad. And that's where John Surratt would have met up with him. And, and that's a place where he probably would have ended up getting brought into the plot realistically. And this is this is January '65, and like you said, you know, at that point he's already assumed his his alias. So in that period of time between when he escaped, you know, after Gettysburg and before he went back and joined Colonel Mosby's Rangers, you know, he spent some time in Warrington, Fauquier County, Virginia, in a family by the name of the Payne family. And so he's kind of like hanging out with them, befriending them. And there's a guy who's in charge of the home is John Payne, and he's got like a nephew whose name is Lewis. Pain, and then kind of from then on, whenever uh, Powell got in trouble, that's when he started using this alias. He kind of stole this kid's identity, which is uh, I don't know if that's a very classy thing to do, but that's when he you know he signs his oath of allegiance, like you talked about. He he does L Pain and stuff like that, and so that's that's why you know in all the books and everything after the assassination, you know his identity. He was the mystery man. He really was. And there's a great book by author Betty Owensby uh, called Alias Pain. Yeah. Lewis Thornton Powell, the mystery man, a Lincoln conspiracy, and uh, because really no one knew who he was. I mean, because he. Even after the arrest, you know, he wasn't talking to the authorities. He barely told his lawyer. His lawyer took two weeks through, you know, the trial had been going for two weeks before finally Powell tells his lawyer his real name and where his family is and everything like that down in Florida. And so he really was like, like you said, Darren, he was a Confederate kind of through and through. And he he entered this plot of booths with this this soldier's mentality. The last words of, of Powell when they're putting the, the execution hood and the noose around his neck and they, you know, the the executioner is saying, I hope you die quick pain. Even then, you know, they still call him pain because I don't know any better. He says, you know, best captain. And he still has that military, you know, that that soldierly look about it. And that's what he followed Booth as the same way. He saw Booth as a superior. And this was a cause for you know, it was played to him as a cause that would benefit the Confederacy. And this was something that he joined first to kidnap. And then even when it sh- switched to assassination, you don't question your orders. You know, once you've decided, you know, you do what is told to you. And Powell, you know, that's what happened to him. It was, was interesting about Powell. Too. He showed some cracks in the armor. There's that story where he kind of saved some Union soldiers when he was part of Mosby's yeah. partisan rangers, protect them from a farm they just pillage. And, and he's an interesting cat in a lot of different ways. 
but he's certainly somebody who was clearly, he was Boo's muscle and he knew that he was going to be the most loyal guy. He had to have been realistically the only guy Booth probably 100% trusted in the entire thing. And that's kind of what the way it went through. But he, you know, to your point, you know, you know, best captain. He was, he was a soldier. That's what he was. Yeah, And I think that's the huge difference between him and someone like Atzerat. Atzerat, you know, when it came down to it, wasn't about to follow an order that was to murder somebody. And Powell, you know, having been a soldier, was. And and that was the defense, you know, a Powell's defense attorney, his closing arguments, you know, there wasn't much hope for Powell. I mean, he, he stabbed the Secretary of State, you know, in the face. And he, you know, broke Frederick Seward's head, you know, a piece of his skull popped out with his gun and stabbed, yeah. you know, a bunch of other people. There wasn't much hope, but that is what the defense attorney, you know, William Doster said. He said that it was the South that had turned him into a killer. You know, that it was the war. Mm-hmm. It was slavery. It was being a Confederate that, you know, you can't blame him for doing what he did because he had been trained, you know, since through the war to become this machine and Booth just gave him the direction, you know, that he required. Mm-hmm. And so it was a, a good attempt to save his client, to condemn the Confederacy in general in the South and the the whole, you know, environment that Powell grew up in to try to save him. Um, but yeah, exactly as Darren said, he was the muscle. And, you know, you said he trusted him the most, you know, when Booth and Harold get to Surratt Tavern and are talking to John M. Lloyd and get their thing. And before they leave, what do they say? They say, oh, I have some news if you want to hear it. And Lloyd says, whatever. <laughs> you know, tell me if you want. And Booth says, I'm pretty sure we have assassinated Lincoln and Secretary Seward. There was no, even though Seward survived, Booth was confident. And he didn't say the vice president, which I think is very telling that he had no, because if Davy, whether he knew or not that Georgia didn't go through with it, Booth wasn't ready to brag that they killed the vice president because he wasn't sure. But when it came to Powell, he knew he could trust Powell to get the job done. And it was only by a miracle that, that he didn't kill Secretary mm-hmm. Seward. Exactly. Yeah. At the trial, they, you know, his attorneys are going to try to soften him a little bit without much. Like his story, he, allegedly Paul wanted to, you know, apologize to Seward for what he did. And he tried to say that everything against Mary Surratt, she was innocent. And by then the die was cast with that. You don't want to say he was a robot, but he was a trained killer. And he was somebody who, if, unfortunately, yeah. if you're going to do a plot like this, you have to have a guy like that. There's no question. And the interesting thing, too, is I think when Booth read the papers and read about Seward's sons, what had happened to him, he was appalled by it. He was like, this is not what I asked him to do. I asked yeah, him, D- I asked, Davey said, yeah, he felt bad about the sons. Yeah, I asked him to go after just, just Secretary of State, not his kid. Well, well, you mentioned before about how he was talking to Lloyd down at, down at Surrattsville. Was, there's those stories where they weren't even sure how the heck the secession was supposed to go. If you kill the vice president, it's not like it is now. You know, the president pro tem, the Senate's the guy who was supposed to take over. You know, a guy named Lafayette Foster was the guy who would have taken over. Mm-hmm. But they didn't even know. And there's that story of Booth was kind of asking well, a friend of his, like, so not for nothing, who follows him? And the guy just started laughing after a while. He's like, How do I decapitate the government? You'll never get that far, you know. But it goes to show. And it, if, if you can probably see that once Richmond fell, you can see Booth snapped and decided he was going to. To your point, just out of vanity and to do the whole thing. Before we get to Mary, it's funny talking about the, the kidnapping plot of how silly the whole thing got to. My favorite story is the one how they were going to shut the lights off and throw Lincoln off the balcony. And oh, at Fort Theater. On, yeah. He was going to come it's right like, back on again. David Blaine it. He's, <laughs> like he's gone now. Where'd Where'd he go? Where'd he go? Allegedly, Ed, you know, Edward Spangler was the guy who was put, put the lights out, right? And uh, that's what they wanted to accuse right. him of, but and I then, don't. And then there's that story where when the actual assassination happened, allegedly he couldn't get to the light and then you had peanuts holding the horse and it, it it's so funny because it it turned it turned into a, a keystone cops of who was supposed to do what at the end with the whole thing and when you when you read the the, the accounts of because you could you could read five different sources and they're all five different stories mm-hmm. you know and they're all george atzerat 
You know, yep. I've said many times, P- Peanuts got screwed. I'm saying that my, my whole peanuts. life. Because <laughs> he got kicked and hit with a knife? He, he, got, he got beaten up. He's a sort of poor little guy holding the horse. <laughs> he gets beaten up. But yeah, there's, there's a lot of that though. But but Powell's certainly somebody who, you know, he you know, he was a soldier right up until the end. To your point, he says, you know, you know, best captain. He, you know, he, he knew his fate the entire time of the trial. And I thought Norman Reedus did a great job blowing him in the movie, too, by the way. Yeah, I thought so too. Didn't have a good lot of lines. I wish he had yeah. more. <laughs> He certainly had the mentality. The thing I remember about Powell, again, going back to the Killing Lincoln documentary, is just when they're sitting in that hotel room, the initial meeting, and he's like, it's pain. I ain't going by Powell no more. And then Booth is oh. like, could you get it straight? And then they go <laughs> they go back to when he's in the shooting gallery, and he's like, it's Powell or whatever. He he says the reverse, and the look on Booth's face, he just rolls his eyes. It's like, could we not? Just could you you, you pick one? Alias? It must have just been for the audience benefit to know who this I guy know, is that, and to throw that, it in twice. That's what I'm thinking. It's like, but just like Booth, like the, the guy who played Booth, his reaction, he's just rolling his eyes like, okay, could could we not keep changing the alias that you have? Because if we get questioned. Well, and he did, because I mean, when he first, you know, came to this rap boarding house, he decided to pretend to be a Baptist preacher named Wood. And yeah. I mean, his dad was a Baptist preacher, you know, so it wasn't a bad alias because he yeah. knew from his father, you know, what that would look like. But I remember Anna Surratt or Anora Fitzpatrick, one of them be like, well, that he'd make a queer preacher. I don't know if he's going to convert a lot of souls because yeah. he just seemed so out of place. And, you know, and nowadays, Powell is the poster child. I mean, you show pictures of Lewis Powell to people. Like I, I show it to them and he is, it looks up. he's, I mean, he was a handsome man. I mean, you talk about Booth being the handsomest man in America, but mm-hmm. if you put Lewis Powell next to him, I mean, I'm okay saying that Lewis Powell was one handsome dude. And that is, he looks like a Calvin Klein model in well, his yeah, mugshot the col- photographs. The colorized photos of him. He's, and yeah. isn't, isn't he, is he the youngest one? Yes. Cause I think he has his 21st birthday in prison. Yep. Around he was born that, 18, he's born 1844, yeah, right? So he's so the 20, 21, yeah. Okay. You know, we talk about he's not one-dimensional, just a soldier. The stories about, like you said, mm-hmm. him taking care of animals. His family had good memories of him. But at the same time, there were those aspects of rage. One time he he got arrested for beating a black servant half to death uh-huh. for disobeying mm-hmm. him. Yeah. I mean, it plays a role that these, these are complicated people who, you know, as you said, he even before going to the gallows was trying to defend Mary, trying to defend a woman. He he protected some union soldiers who had surrendered to him and people were trying to kill them. And he stood up for them and said, no, you will not kill these men. So there's this very conflicted, just like everybody where you have all these layers and it's hard to just judge him as one thing or another. And we shouldn't because he was a rounded individual with both a lot of positive attributes and obviously a lot of negative mm-hmm. attributes as well. Exactly. Yep. And, and that's a good segue well, into our last conspirator that we're we going to talk, talk about, about which we is talk about our girl Mary now. Mary Surratt. <laughs> Drinking from the Mary mug. Yep. <laughs> you gotta do it, you gotta do it. So, so you know, Mary, Mary Surratt's story, you know, Mary Jenkins, she, she's somebody who you could do a whole episode on just her. She's the enigma. She's the whole thing. And she's somebody out of all the people back then and now, it's it's really a polarizing type of person. You know, whether it's, it's you, know, you feel for or you hate her, or, you know, there's just doesn't seem to be much in between. You know, a staunch Southern supporter. You know, she ran the Confederate underground out of her home in Surrattsville. The thing about Mary, though, was that, you know, she she was widowed at a young age. And she was a strong businesswoman for someone of that period. I mean, she was, you know, people, she had collectors coming to her at his property trying to take advantage of her. And she wasn't having it. 
I always like the fact that she grew up on Andrews Air Force Base. I always got a kick yeah. out of that story. That is cool. It's just an it's just an irony that that her family grew up on the land that would become Andrews Air Force Base. And I think she gets you know? her independence from the fact that her father dies at a young age, and her mother has to. She's got to take over this plantation and manage the farm, manage the slaves, and she does it quite well. And she manages to increase the, you know, the finances that she has. So she's got this really good figure. But the interesting thing about it is, you know, at the end of the story, her mother never has anything to say about the execution yeah, of her, her mother. Her mother outlives her, and we have no, yeah, no, no, no documents from her what she said about what happened to her daughter. Exactly. But you can see how she's influenced by her because I've always seen Mary Surratt as being somebody who, you know, she goes through hell with her husband, John Sr., who is, you know, he's an alcoholic by like 1861, and I think he passes away 1862. She's got her three kids, but she's also, as she's as they're growing up with this, she's got to protect them in any way she can from who he is with, with the tavern, and he he's clearly drinking quite a bit so i i see her as being a very independent strong female figure again it goes back to the other conspirators in this like what do they have in this like what what's their stake in this and hers is is the boarding house that that she has which is where they're all gathering you know well, I mean, that, that's where John running, you know, smuggling up and down from, from that area. It's, a, you know, obviously a hotbed of Confederate activity. It's interesting because she she moves the family to Washington, D.C. to get away from that whole element. They end up buying the place over there right behind you. You can see her waving from the window, actually, if you look yeah. close, you know. Yeah. Again, she was, you know, quite industrious. But again, she had she had a little controversy. She had a little trouble with that priest. There was rumors yeah. that talk about with him and who else sent up to Boston, by the way. And, you know, <laughs> oh, Father Fanati came up by you? Father Fanati, he was sent to Boston. Usually yeah. they get sent out of here to somewhere else. <laughs> wow. <laughs> they were just friends, Darren. Yeah, absolutely. 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 He needed a confidant. Her husband yeah. was train wreck. Yeah. <laughs> no question about it. But again, I, th- I think, you know, she was focused on protecting John, protecting Anna. And Isaac, her other son, was fighting for the Confederacy, and he went, never saw him again. He ended up living, but, you know, never got back to it. Her situation is one that she's, you know, very strong Confederate of that area. There's no question about it. She ends up getting pulled into the entire thing because, you know, she ends up having the property, which takes it right behind you, which ends up being the nest that hatched the, the egg roll. That phrase, the, 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 yeah. yeah, according to President Johnson. <laughs> the egg roll. You got it. That, that's the, the pun I tell on the booth, on the booth tour. <laughs> yeah. The, nowadays with the Chinese restaurant, it's the nest that hatched the egg roll. You've so someday it. the three of us have to go take a picture outside that restaurant and put that as Absolutely. a caption on Twitter or something like that. That's right. <laughs> You know, so, so I know you've done a lot of background on Mary back, you know, specifically when she was young. So how do you think her mindset was growing up, specifically from going from Maryland into Washington, D.C., and probably her mindset when she got to D.C.? I mean, she is, you know, Southern Maryland, like, born and bred. And it, we, we undercut, like, Maryland. You know, Maryland has a very complex history when it comes to the Civil War, being a border state and just being so reliant on, on slavery and how it essentially was forced to stay in the Union, you know, by military act when the secession crisis began. And so Mary is very much a Confederate sympathizer. There's no doubt about it. I mean, we can mm-hmm. try to, it, it's it's hard for us, I know, sometimes, especially some of Mary's defenders talk about, you know, she couldn't be capable of some of these things because let's look at how deeply religious she was, which she absolutely was. She was, you know, she was, she converted to Catholicism and, you know, she was very religious and went to church all the time. And, but that 
you know, as we know, sometimes sometimes the people who proclaim to be the most religious can be, in my mind, sometimes the most sinful. But she had that that same thing of being supportive of, you know, slavery. She saw it as a way of life that, you know, needed to continue. She had slaves of their own, um, even though because of financial circumstances, she was more renting enslaved people from her neighbors. And, you know, she had a rough time after her husband drank himself to death and, you know, was in so much debt that that's why she moved to that DC property. And then living there, I'm, she moved there, I think, partly to help her children. But at that point, John Stratt was already in it. I mean, he was already, he had taken over as postmaster after his father died. And even after they lost the postmaster position, he was then doing, that's when he stopped being a agent in a set place and started being a courier. It's hard to believe, especially during that period of time when he was postmaster before it was revoked from him. And then afterward that she wasn't aware of some things that he was doing. And that's where the big question of how much did she know? But once John Surratt brings John Wilkes Booth to her home, she does get roped in. And so I don't think it's that Booth, Booth never sought Mary out. You know, when we talk about these other conspirators, he sought these people out. You know, Davy, he brought him in. You know, Powell, he definitely sought him out. George was to help with this. Mary, I feel like, you know, that's why it's hard for, for people to believe in her guilt is because she's not like, you don't go being like, you know what I need on this A team? A widowed mother living in DC. That's what I need. a boarding house. Oh, a boarding house. That's what I need. No, it was just when John Surratt was no longer there because he's doing these courier activities for the Confederacy and Booth is still trying to keep his own kind of weird plan together and Mary allows him to use that space and is his go-between between John Surratt and himself. That's what gets her into this and she was never going to play an active role. She just kind of got one because she had to play that middleman and that's what kind of works against her. I mean, a lot works against her too because you have people like Sarah Slater of that place all the time. She was always there. I always go back to the fact that it's like, well, if I was going to do a really bad crime, would I tell my friend's mother? And that's where I always kind of fall back on too. But again, she clearly knew about the kidnapping plot. She had to have. Mm -hmm. Whether or not she knew about the assassination, it's it's tough to say. The the two damning pieces against Mary, if we're going to go, if we're going to go try to damn her, was the fact that she had allegedly reserved a room for Powell at the Herndon House in March. She had she was part of that. And the, the smooth story is the one that gets you. That's the one mm-hmm. that gets her, right? So the story where the night of the assassination, Richard Smooth is the guy who owned the boat down at Port Tobacco. I guess Sarah had only paid for half of it because that's what he was going to do. Take off, you only pay half. You might as well save some money. He comes knocking on the door the night of the assassination looking for the money. And I guess Mary is like, you need to go because they're going to use it today. I could be wrong, but I don't think that, that story came out till after. Yes, it was quite a bit after that mm-hmm. Smooth right. Um, finally told that story yeah so that adds a little bit of credence to the fact that she knew something was going down that night whether or not it was the assassination or not and then there's a story the whiteman story about like you referenced earlier about when they were coming back from clinton or Surrattsville, that all this happiness will be turning to gloom and she was asking about when the soldiers sentries leave their post and there's, there's all those little stories that again it's all hearsay if i'm going to hang my hat on mary being guilty it's the smooth story because that's the one that there's really no explanation for that she used those words. And, and and that's the thing with Mary. It's funny how we have all these small pieces. And, you know, the problem about Mary is that you have the, the witnesses where we really put the evidence on are unreliable witnesses. I tend to believe most of what Lewis Weichmann says on the stand, you know, the border who testified about Booth being there. And because we, we have other witnesses who verified that and that, you know, he would have conversations with Mary when John Surratt was out and things like that. And I tend to also believe John M. Lloyd at, at Sarasville Tavern, who's, you know, when he says that when, Mary came that day that she told him to have the shooting irons ready. Someone's going to call for them tonight. And so it, it's, but they are, those witnesses also 
we have to question them because they, I mean, Lloyd is told the night of the assassination, I think we just shot Lincoln and we killed the secretary of state. And then Lloyd goes to sleep. You know, he's just like, all right, well, have fun with that. Bye. And, you know, Weichmann, as Mary alluded to earlier with Davy Harold, is the kid who wants to be involved. And, and Booth manipulates him too. He gets Weichmann wrapped in this as well, like doing hop, you know, things for him, you know, telling, I think there's a telegram that John Wilkes Booth sends to Lewis Weichmann saying, give me that the address of Powell, you know, at the Herndon house or whatever you're saying that he, Booth is trying to wrap him into this as well. And that's where it gets complicated. Where do we put our trust when we have these pretty damning statements from these guys, but they themselves are also very questionable. Yeah. I mean, the Lloyd story, I mean, because it took him a little bit of time to come around in that story. I think he had a little time in Capitol prison. Then he finally woke up and said, well, I better tell this story. Yeah. So again, a lot of this, it goes back to covering your own skin with a lot of this stuff. And in my whole thing with her was there's no way she's completely innocent. It's just, it's just, you have to be, you have to be, you have to really, really, really stretch it out. You know, my Mary Sirac glass notwithstanding, she clearly knew something, whether or not she knew about the assassination, is it possible she still thought there could have been some sort of kidnapping plot? I suppose they had nowhere to take him though. That's the other right. thing too. Yeah. You know, he was, Booth was talking a lot about how Joseph Johnson was going to be going to the mountains and he was going to be living, fighting the guerrilla war. And maybe he was going to take him there and who knows, and, Maybe they're going to go to Eden, Oklahoma. Maybe who knows? Popular place. Exactly. We're going to hit, hit Granberry first. I'm going to go to Eden. We'll, yep. we'll yep. get you there. You wonder too, because you know how much John Serrano, was he ever going? Were they holding her basically bait for John to come back to? I think in but some then ways was, they were. The, but then there was, but then there was, you know, these reports that John Surratt was seen in Washington that night too, which ended up not being true. So you wonder how much they really knew. The night of, of the 14th of April, I always equated to the, what, what 9-11 was like here, where all these rumors, all these stories, mm -hmm. you know, you're hearing horses running through the streets as rumors, there's the Confederate cavalry and, you know, go, go coming back. And so you can imagine the, the sheer mayhem and all the stories that came out of that and all the different urban legends that we still deal with today. I do think, you know, she was kind of held for like to, to bring her son out of where he was, which was in Canada. <laughs> He's, Those he's darn Canadians. Hiding up, yep. up, up in, in Montreal, and he never shows up. He never I does. think that was definitely a part of it, but also they had enough to hold her. I think they wanted they did have Absolutely, enough to they hold wanted her. John Surratt. Yeah. But it wasn't, you know, that, that sometimes I feel like people, and not that you were doing it, but there are some people make the argument that, oh, Mary's innocent. They just wanted John. I'll be like, well, they wanted John, but also look at what oh, they, they had, had on they, her. They, they had look enough they had to have her, her, but they also wanted yeah. John. And I think they were yeah. playing into that, like, oh, he's her son. So he's going to come be the good son and, and save her. I'm not sure if he could have, though, to be honest. No. I, I think if John, would, if John Surratt would have come back, I think they would have added him to add a chair. I think so. But then I think they still would have the evidence against Mary. And maybe, maybe just because they were, may, might get worried about doing, you know, executing a woman. But really, I always look at too, like Mary was in their eyes, Mary was guilty. Like really, I mean, you look at the final votes, you know, they, I mean, we don't have the exact vote counts, but they found her guilty and they found a two thirds majority decided that she should be executed. And yes, you have a clemency plea where they say, you know, but the clemency plea isn't, we think she's innocent. It's she's guilty. We have established beyond a reasonable doubt mm -hmm. that she's guilty and not only guilty, but deserving to be executed. So you voted twice for each one of the conspirators when they were deciding the, the guilt and then sentencing, they did two votes for each conspirator. Are they guilty? You just needed a majority vote to be found guilty. And then mm -hmm. should they be executed? Then you needed two thirds. So the, we don't know exact vote counts, but still she was found 
found guilty and enough people, at least six out of the nine commissioners says she should be executed based on the evidence. And then even though five of them wrote, I think it was five, wrote a clemency plea, it wasn't because we think she's innocent. It's because she's a woman and her age. It was more chivalry that made them do it, not any question of her guilt. And it really, up until the point where she was hanging by the end of that rope, People were calling, they were said, look at this evidence. It was only because, and it's interesting how that plays into the dynamic of Victorian womanhood and masculinity and chivalry and stuff like that, how she was capable of it all during the trial when we have all this evidence. But then the second we punish her in the same way that we would punish a man for this, then we have done something wrong, that there's something wrong with society. She is a woman. How could we have done that? And it's interesting how it plays into just these bigger ideas. I think it's the PR because it went from hanger to, oh my God, we can't possibly hang her almost yeah. overnight, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And you look at the nine guys, Hunter and Carlton, Howe and Aiken and Clinton and Wallace and Foster and Tompkins and Harris, all the wow. nine of them, right? Wow, way to go, buddy. <laughs> right? so I could not do that if you asked me to. <laughs> so, so you have nine of them. You probably had six was going to hang because it's majority, you know, it was two thirds and five. So you have to wonder out of the five people who, we have no idea who the five were, who were looking for clemency. Oh, no, we know. We know the five who signed it. We do? Yeah, the because the clemency plea was signed by five of them. I don't know at the top of my head who they were, but we don't oh, okay. know. And that's the thing. You needed at least two-thirds. They all could have voted to execute her, yeah. you know, and yeah, we true. just don't know. And just it just had to be at least six out of the nine. But even the executioner eligible. said that he just put five knots in because he didn't, right. he didn't think that she was going to be executed. And he was and like, you have those the same ideas of chivalry. That's why. Exactly. Yeah. And like Lewis Powell, we talked about him saying, you know, Mary Surratt had nothing to do with it. That is an example of that that chivalry, because I tell you right now, Davy Harold said she's in deep in it as the rest of us. So, you know, sometimes people like to point out, be like, well, look, Lewis Powell, he on the, on the you know, at the scaffold said she was innocent. Davy was complaining at one point during the trial when she was getting sympathetic treatment. He was like, that old lady was in it as deep as the rest of us. So, you know, the idea of Davy, I, I can believe that because he definitely doesn't take me as the one to be the chivalrous type while Powell could be. And so it's just that's why Mary's so interesting, because you have, you know, it's like a coin flip about how much did she know? Darren, I agree. Definitely not completely innocent. No way. Knew something was going to happen. Enough evidence that something's going to happen. I think based on the evidence they had, even though there's questionable nature, when it comes down to what the verdicts were, even though I disagree with the death penalty, I, I'm very much against it in practice, even historically and stuff like that. When you look at what they did for these people on trial, the four we've talked about tonight, the evidence is that they knew about the assassination before it happened and did nothing to stop it. And that's what that earned them the noose as opposed to, oh, sorry, my phone's making noises. It's okay. Um, as opposed to the other four who they couldn't prove that. They may knew about the abduction and stuff like that. And so whether or not it was fair to execute them is a subject of debate. But I think as kangaroo courty as the military commission was, they were as fair as they could possibly be when it came to doling out punishments based on the evidence. Yeah, and the litmus test, test to your point was whether or not you knew about the assassination or not. You know, you can kind of expand this thing. I know we're not going to talk about more people, but you look at, you know, John Lloyd knew after the fact, certainly. You know, guys oh, the like people Tom, who helped right, Bruce, right? yeah, on the escape. Yeah, guys, yeah. Like, guys like Tom, Thomas Jones, guys like that, right? Yeah. They clearly knew it because he was, you know, in the pint thick and bringing food, you know. So you wonder where they drew the line. Because they could have thrown a big net if they really, really wanted to. And they claimed they were going. I mean, they arrested all of those people. And they were on the uh-huh. wanted poster. It says, you know, death to anyone who aids uh-huh. in the beds and stuff like yeah. that. So they threatened that. But I think 
in reality, they realize, first of all, we can't do that. Like, I mean, can you really get away from us? Like, you know, executing just, I mean, Thomas Jones helped a little bit, but you know, all these little people along the way, you know, can we get away with it? And even mud, you know, people like to be like, well, look what they did to Dr. Mud. I'd be like, yeah, but look what Dr. Mud did. I know we're not talking about him, but look what Dr. Mud did uh, in the months before. Exactly. That's why he doesn't fall in the same category as Thomas Jones. Cause yeah, did he aid in a bed after he sure did, but did he also help with the preparations? He absolutely did. Exactly. Well, you, well, you can make a case for Samuel Mudd that he knew that there was something going on. It's, it's pretty, pretty unreasonable to think he knew about the assassination Real oh, time. I agree. So in his mind, I, I don't buy the fact that he heard a knock on the door and he's because of his oath, he had to, I don't buy it. Like, he think he knew who it was, but he probably didn't know what Booth had done. Sure. But he also Absolutely. got him the hell out of Dodge pretty quick too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He, sent him on, he sent him on his way. Yeah. Sent him off with Harold. So he knew he must have been something. That the, and then he lied to the authorities, which is yeah, what did him in. His own yeah. lawyer said if they would, he, he denied knowing Booth. And then, you know, it wasn't until after he was arrested. He's like, oh, you yeah, know, I know John Wilkes Booth. It's like, yeah. dude, what did you think <laughs> was going to happen? Them to, like, it, wasn't yeah. he the reason like Surratt and yes. Booth met? It, people who love Mary, you should hate Dr. Mudd. Because if Dr. Mm-hmm. Mudd didn't exist, Mary would have been alive. No, Nothing I don't bad like, I don't, here. I've never been a fan of Dr. Mudd. <laughs> <laughs> but the Mud House is great. Go visit his house. Oh, I know. The Mud House mm-hmm. is great. <laughs> and growing up, all I heard from my grandmother was, if you do that, your name will be Mud," which yeah. I know is not really connected. It's apparently not connected with him. It is now. That's she, the way I see she it. told me it was, but I'm like, why do you keep saying that? And she's like, do you know who Dr. Mudd is? The same way Hooker is with Joe Hooker now. It's the same deal. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, exactly. It, it is now. Now you can say. Yeah. But that's what my grandma always told me was it was Dr. Mudd. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> All right. I'm glad that that made its way up to and like I can't say I've ever heard anyone use it in real life other than like when I'm talking about this stuff. So oh, my great. grandma used it with me all the time. Like if I was doing awesome. something that could potentially get me into trouble, she was like, "You keep doing that, your name will be Mud." And I'm like, "Who? Who's Mud?" And she was You're just like, like squishy dirt. And she's like, "No, Doctor Mud." And I'm like, oh, "Okay." No, right. it's an interesting area. He's 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 a kind of a cool grave to visit too when you go oh, down absolutely. there to that yeah. church at the church where he met him, where he met yeah. Booth. No, it's it's interesting. It's that, that whole area is really, really neat down there. But I think the, the whole sordid tale is interesting, though. The movie we referenced earlier that was kind of based on Larson's book there the is interesting, too. The conspirator, because in, in, we'll have her on for the book club, David. I think hopefully you're going to join us. Yeah, That'll be a definitely. great time. You know, it does show, and I think everybody should who studies this should see the movie. It's not the mm-hmm. most thrilling movie of all time. Really, I love you know? I the love most... that movie. But it's it's a good it's a good movie if you're into this. It's a good yes. courtroom drama. Yeah. But I mean if there aren't too many 16-year-old kids who go on a seat sit down and love this one. It's just okay, a when I was 16 movie. I totally would have been a... But of course I'm like this the whole time, you know. Oh me too. You know, I will like, say oh. and I think Kate Cover Larson brings it up too is this like in the movie, Frederick Aiken, you know, who's played by uh, James McAvoy, yeah. you know, it's all about, it's it's about him, you know, more so than, I mean, it's about Mary, but it's mostly about him. Yeah. And they make him seem really good. He was the worst attorney there. Oh, he I mean, was I, I did, so I, bad. <laughs> he was really bad in questioning and doing this thing. He was kind of a rookie. He was asking questions he didn't know the answers to and just like calling witnesses that were not relevant. Not a good attorney. But in the movie, you know, just like Hollywood magic. Well, it's James McAvoy. Yeah, look at him fighting for justice in you know, this system. And my only critique is that I understand the criticisms that you put toward, you know, that people put toward Edwin Stanton and just the entire commission and everything like that. And I'm not saying that Stanton didn't, wasn't involved in the the goings on of the court and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But I shy away from people who really dislike Stanton <laughs> because it puts, because not because I don't, I don't really care for him, but only because it puts all of the badness on one man, which I don't think is fair. We like, are not I don't really care for Stanton, Stanton here just to let you know. Well, well, no, I don't just, yeah. 
Go ahead, it's, Jay. it's way more in this is mostly because of the war aspect of it all too. Yeah. I mean, just the, he manipulated Lincoln, him and Halleck, and that's a different different podcast. The only problem I had with this one was Kevin Klein playing him, by the way. I you didn't like him? I thought he did I good. Didn't, I didn't. I will watch I Kevin Klein like, in anything. Oh, me too. I, I, I thought like he did him. great. Yeah, but but yeah. He, he was a little too fish called Wand, a little too dazed for me. <laughs> it was just, it was, I, I like him, but I thought John. You wanted Lincoln, a little more Wild Wild West? John Goodman. Oh, I loved him in Wild Wild West. Wild Wild West. Yes. Well. That was pretty yes. good. <laughs> Although, ever, ever Rachel Ward, I'll watch that. I'll watch her with the phone book. I'll knock her out. <laughs> But, but, you know, she was good. Too. She was really good too. And you she can't have Milton from Office Space playing. Uh, playing yeah, John John well, it's too bad you, you couldn't have had the that. Stanton from uh, the National Geographic documentary Killing Lincoln, who looked like job. that movie was spot on cast. That's another one that we've like I've mentioned a couple times in this. It's it's great. Not really connected with the Bill O'Reilly. As you've been on Twitter to talk mm. about that, it is an excellent. They did not use Bill O'Reilly's book at all to do it, which is why it's great. So good. And people, I've had people like, I don't want to watch it because I think it's Bill. It's not Bill O'Reilly. It is. It's they used the gentleman who wrote the book John Wilkes Booth Day by Day. His name was Art Lukes, and he was the one who did it. And his book is great, and that's why the the documentary is wonderful. Yeah, it it is poorly named, but wonderful. Exactly, it is so good. And I thought, I don't know, I thought like the guy that played Booth did really good, and I thought like Billy Campbell who was Lincoln was was great too like I thought it, it was so well cast and so well mm-hmm. done and it's another one next to the conspirator that I would after you've listened to this episode watch them both mm-hmm. that's right it was interesting all four of these people we talked about you know they all go to the gallows and it's almost like they're all going on a different path you know Mary you know the, the whole don't let me fall line mm-hmm. you know have the whole to your point about what housing you know, the captain you know thing. best captain you know, best captain. And the, the sad part about Powell is, um, is he didn't die too quick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was he the one eight minutes to die. You, you wonder, all four of these guys, what went through their minds at the very end if they realized they followed just a false leader that went down the wrong road. You know, because like we said before, these aren't people who were just hired guns. These are people who all had their own lives. I think as people study them individually, what's great about talking about them is it, it human, you know, humanizes them a little bit. It shines light on them. Because when you talk about the Lincoln conspiracy, of course, you're going to talk about Booth. And that's all you most people are going to talk about. But the people who helped and, and embedded him along the way all have their own stories. And I think people don't realize that there's good stories to tell. Yeah. And I think it's about, you know, you watch documentaries about it on TV and they really make them into villains and stuff. And like what they did was wrong, but, you know, it's about the lives that they had before too. What led them to this? You know, we're talking about George Atzerott who had at the time, Edith probably would have been about three or four years old. These are sons, their fathers, their their siblings mothers. of people, exactly mothers who are, you know, ultimately in the end trying to protect their children. And, you know, Mary probably was trying to protect John in some way. And I think when you look at these people and you humanize them, it's going to un- help you understand the whole Lincoln conspiracy a little bit more and the history behind it. Yeah, because Booth, you know, he's the villain and he should be. He deserves yep. to be the villain. Absolutely. And even though he's interesting, has his own stuff and yep. we can talk about him. I kind of prefer the conspirators because they speak more to us as everyday individuals and the path that we can choose that we can make seemingly for good reasons for you know for a cause we believed in in the terms of lewis powell for for money for some way to support our family in the case of like george astronaut for accepting you know finding a a group of people who believe in you and trust you like davy harold or you know you know mary that's still you know why did she do it well she wanted to help her son help a cause and to what degree her guilt is there that you have good intentions i mean you know you say that the path to hell is paved in good intentions 
but they are the cautionary tale. At Booth, you, it's hard to associate ourselves. We look at Booth and be like, I would never, I'm not a famous actor who goes nuts and shoots the president. Mm-hmm. But these individuals, they weren't crazy. You know, Booth wasn't either. But, you know, they were just normal people like you and me. And that is why most people don't like, in my mind, to study this stuff is because it's too close to home. It's easy to discount Booth and the conspirators as bad bad in every way, yep. bad people who do bad things. And it makes us feel better as society to know there's the good and there's the bad, but we know it's not true. We know it's not. And this is an example of these are individuals who did bad things. Absolutely. They were took part in one of the greatest crimes in American history. And we still feel the repercussions today, but they weren't at inherently bad or evil people. Mm-hmm. It was the choices they made. And it's hard for people a lot of times to judge that, especially when you have Lincoln on the other side. Exactly. Lincoln, who, and we, how who we need to revere. How yeah. he's been kind of like, you know, it, it, it's like he gets elevated in all this, which he he probably was the greatest president. He was a great Absolutely. he was a great human. But at that, is it right that we take these people down into being just, you know, the worst, the worst, to balance to, it to out. just, you know, this, these one dimensional figures who were, were absolute demons. It's sometimes like they just appear on April 14th. And they disappear when they're executed. And I think to understand the full story, to understand even Lincoln's presidency, you have to study them as people as well and to understand what their motives were, why they did it. Even though we disagree with it. Exactly. They made those choices. Exactly. They made those choices. We have to learn from them yep. and figure out why they did it. Otherwise, Lincoln's death is hollow. And that's my biggest thing I've always said whenever people ask why I study this, because it seems like it's the, it's the bad guy. It's the sad ending to Lincoln, you know, this this the great emancipator and everything. Why would you spend so much time on this? I'm just because it gives meaning to Lincoln's death. Without it, when we just give him the caricatures of crazy Confederate actor and a bunch of bad people, then it's it's hollow. It, it, his death means nothing. At that point, because it it just shows just, you know, but when you put it in context of the greater picture, what motivated each of these people, it helps show his impact on everyone. Just even the nobodies like George Astrod or, you know, like David Harold, you know, it's like that Lincoln had such an impact on them that they would work towards this thing of killing him shows, you know, it, it explains Lincoln's importance in his own time, even from the people who hated him. And if we just discount Booth and the conspirators, we lose a central part of who Lincoln was in his own time. Exactly. No, 100% agree with that. Well, it, it's definitely, it's easier historically to look at Booth as the Pascara from the apostate, right? To look at that. The only guy who could kill a president like Lincoln had to be the epitome of evil, right? In that that's the way the, the whole mindset goes. And so you have to, it's the, it's the seesaw. It's got to be one or the other. So it's yeah. easy. I think conceptually in our minds, put your arms around it that way than to look at these people as complex individuals, because it, it, when you humanize them, you want them to be anything but human. And I think that's why people don't like to study them, why people don't like to even say his name. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it's important to, to look at this, because once we stop humanizing people, I'm not sure what, what, what we're all doing here. That's what that's what we have to do. Exactly. There's a fear to see our, and I mean, there is a legitimate fear to see parts of ourselves in these figures mm-hmm. and that makes us uncomfortable. And so we refuse it by making them two-dimensional, you know, just flat characters. But when you really look into it, it not that it's not that you agree in anything, but when you see the human side of it, it's uncomfortable for us, but we need to, in all history to see, especially when we look at the villains, not because we agree with them, but to see what was the human, the human element that led them to what they did. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I think it was a good discussion. We could drop it off here, I think. Yep. I think, but it's a great talk to, to do all this stuff. And I could talk about this all night. Oh, all me all too. <laughs> Hopefully but the three of us can get together sometime and talk about this over like some drinks at the walk and roll. That's right. <laughs> yeah. 
And wow. Mary's going to show off her uh, her karaoke skills. Oh yeah, oh. we'll see. <laughs> that would Harsh, be the, Darren. I'll tell you right now, that will be the worst disaster ever to happen on that building. Trust me. Wow, <laughs> rough. If that happens. Ooh. You don't want that happening. Mary, you should slap him. Is right that now. a challenge? <laughs> Trust me, the worst thing ever to happen in that city. I'm telling you right now, she does. She does karaoke. But, but I think uh, two of you I, islands in the stream. Oh, yep. Sorry. Oh, absolutely. God. <laughs> Oh, old school right there. Just, you know, back of my parents' cars in the back and see with the no seatbelts rolling around. You know, but um, but but again, it's it's great to talk about this stuff too because you know what though, in, in normal lives, you know, we all have our own regular lives. We don't get to talk about this stuff. Yeah. You know, we just don't get a chance. We to get talk funny about looks it. when we do. Exactly. <laughs> what What do you think was going through George Atzerodt's mind? Sorry, sir. This is the Taco Bell drive-thru. You know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think, but we, I think, I, I think you, you study the stuff and you get to learn a lot about it. And I think the more you study this, the more it gives you a greater, you, you learn about Lincoln more by studying this. Exactly. And that's the thing that I've come across is how much more you learn about Abraham Lincoln based on Lincoln assassination. Yeah. I think it's hand in hand. You can't tell the story of Lincoln without telling the story of Booth. I think you just have to do it. Yeah. And it factors into the story of the Civil War as well, how divided the country was, how passionate some people were about the Confederacy. You know, you look at John Wilkes Booth and he's somebody that, you know, the fall of Richmond was probably what made him switch from kidnapping to assassination. Like, well, if I'm going to watch my country die, then by God, the man that made it die is going to go down with it too. I think that's how he felt about it. And that, and, you know, as you said, Dave, the vanity behind it as well. He was very disillusioned at that point. And it all factors into the story that is the, the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. And you have to look at all of it. You'll never know what struggles they had to what was going through their minds, even Booth, for example, yep. of what he wrestled with. But again, it's part of history and it's something everybody should study. Definitely should not be something to be afraid of. It's something to embrace and look at and, and get a better picture, a better appreciation for, uh, for the 16th president at minimum. No question. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, hey, Dave, thanks for jumping on with us. In the yeah, thanks for letting ours. me join you. It yeah, was fun. Was well, awesome. you're welcome back anytime. Yeah, well, welcome back anytime. Like, I think you'll probably be joining us again for another discussion. Sounds good. Yeah, yeah. We, got, we got four of the conspirators exactly. who are on, the, are on trial exactly. and one more who came later. So yeah, I'm just Exactly. Saying. Yeah. We got we to do the whole Michael Laughlin story next time. Yes. Oh, it's fascinating. <laughs> you know he was a quilter? I'll yeah, tell you that yeah. next time. <laughs> Well, I think we definitely have to make that happen sometime then. Oh, it'd be a lot of fun. No question about that. So anyway, so yeah. So anyway, thanks for joining us, Dave. It's been a great time. So this will drop on Saturday morning. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you on Kate's book club. Yes, September. looking forward to talk about that. So now you got to read the book again. Yeah, and that's, I'm looking forward to having to read it again. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. and I love all of Kate Clifford Larson's books. So it's going to be great. Nice. She's great to do. So in any case, so we appreciate you doing it. This is a lot of fun. Mary, as always, pleasure was all yours. Like I say all the time. And um, well, <laughs> I was about to say, thanks for, you know, a full year of this. You've been an awesome co-host. Full year of this. (laughs) She's getting that, she's getting that Lizzie Borden looking right. (laughs) (laughs) But in any case, but again, this is a, this is a great time. So we'll definitely look forward to this. We'll definitely have you on again soon. We've been been looking to have you on for a long time. So I'm glad we finally can finally connect and hope you enjoy Texas. Yeah, sure yeah, make, the land of the booth mummy. Yep. Yeah, you know, there you the go. Make sure, make sure you go to Sixth Street too. Make sure, make sure she lets you out and go to Sixth Street because uh-huh, good uh-huh. restaurants. <laughs> a lot of places are boiling in trouble in Sixth Street. So okay, so I'm not allowed there. I'm not allowed Probably there. not. Probably Darren, not. I doubt if you would be allowed there. 
Oh, I, had a great time. I had a great time. <laughs> He's got a I reputation. Been, He's not allowed back. <laughs> I've, I've been a six street. Six street's fantastic. It's a great time. So yeah, we look forward to talking to you soon. Again, we appreciate you jumping on with us. We uh, always love talking about old JWB and the gang, and we'll look forward to doing this again. We will absolutely do this again. Talk more depth with some of the other guys, and maybe talk about the uh, the other five we ever get a chance to talk. About. Yeah, I think we definitely will. So to all our listeners, thank you for uh, this is our one year anniversary. We were happy to have. Dave Taylor, join us. Uh, follow him at Lynn Conspirators on Twitter, and he's on Instagram too. Follow him on there. He's a great follow. Anyway, so Darren, thank you for being the awesome co-host that you are for these last 52 episodes. Your bobblehead there. Um, so welcome. anyway, until next week, when we will be back with you talking about the Battle of Richmond, Kentucky. So we are headed back to, I guess, the Western Theater again. Facebook Live is always Saturday at 10 a.m. And until next time, we will see you all again soon. Peace out. Bye, guys. Six Semper Duranus. Duranus.